And they talk about getting the right people on the bus and then getting the right people in the right seats. And I'm definitely very focused on getting the right people on the bus. Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Modern Business Operations. Today, I'm joined by Rob Mio. He's the Director of Marketing Operations at Splunk. How you doing, Rob? Doing well. Great to see you, Brianna. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you here. Today, we're going to be talking about growing your operations team. I have a couple housekeeping notes before we get into our topic with Rob. Next week, Sagi will be joined by Parisa. She's the VP of Operations at ServiceNow. And then the following week, I will be discussing optimizing your operations infrastructure. That was a tongue twister with Susan Beaver. She's the Director of Global Partner Programs, Success and Operations at TIBCO. I will drop the link for how you can listen live to that session in this live session that we're on now. And if you're interested in joining the live sessions that I host, where you can come on in real time, listen to the episode and get to know the speaker through Q&A, just go to operations.community and you'll get updated on our live sessions. So now let's go to our topic. Rob, it's, it's nice to have you here. Do you want to just tell everyone a little bit about your background to start? So uh, Rob Mayo, I've been at Splunk going on seven years, which is like forever in, in tech time, really came up through marketing technology. When marketing automation and MarTech was really starting to explode, I, I kind of stepped into that unknowingly and then followed that path from technology into operations, uh, eventually in operations leadership. And then here I am now. Really excited to have you and your experience on the show. You and I had a great chat prior to this about leadership, growing your ops team, et cetera. And so I'm looking forward to tuning everyone into that discussion. But let's just start with the basics. What is Splunk and what do you do there? So Splunk is an enterprise SaaS company. Um, So we sell software to other enterprises. I I guess in a nutshell, Splunk is a big data platform. It's kind of an archaic term, I guess, these days. But we can ingest massive amounts of data Um, Some of our customers are doing exabytes and petabytes of data per day through our platform and then provide visibility into insights in that data, make it really easily searchable, apply machine learning and and AI to that to create some predictability. Our our three biggest use cases are IT operations, cybersecurity and observability. Can you talk a little bit about what you do there? Sure. Yeah. So I lead our marketing operations apps and services team. So my team is responsible for all of our marketing technology, as well as our our global demand center. So some companies would call this campaign ops, all of our email campaign operations from request all the way through deployment goes through our group. So last year, that was about, you know, 30 million total email touch points across, you know, kind of 1500 campaigns that we ran for the team. So if you're a marketer at Splunk, you want to do an email campaign, you make a request of our team and we make sure um, everything's on brand and governed and we take care of segmentation and, and everything within that. So lots of technology, lots of scale and centralized services. That's kind of as Splunk has grown, that's the direction we've moved towards really bringing things in to tight groups and, and governing them and, and, and running them efficiently. Yeah. And I mean, Splunk is massive, right? So the marketing ops team is 40 people and growing. Splunk is growing 30 to 50% and doing three and a half billion a year in revenue. So really yeah. rapid growth. 
What are some of the challenges associated with scaling a team in that environment? So when I joined Splunk, just for context, right? So it was September of 2015. We were doing about 700. 100 million a year in revenue, we had about 1800 people. So now we're closing in on three and a half billion. So kind of 5x on the revenue side. Uh, and then we're we have about 8000 employees now. The trick with that from an operations perspective is it's kind of like as soon as you get into a rhythm of how a process should work, the scale of the company tends to break it. You don't have the luxury of kind of settling into a rhythm and running that for two years, uh, just the company just, you know, the growth won't allow it. So We've had to build our team fast. My team was, you know, four years ago was two people. Now we're closing in. My organization is closing in on 20. We're adding another 10 or 15 this year. And that doesn't include our agency resources, which is about another 30. It's tricky because things are constantly breaking. You know, in tech, you have a lot of new shiny objects to deal with, new technologies, Obviously, our, our marketers and, and folks across go-to-market, they get pitched on new tech and they want it, right? And a lot of tech feels like a, a silver bullet. And I really try to take a perspective of longevity and really thinking about what's going to scale for the organization. Um, you don't need the most cutting-edge technology in most cases. You need familiarity with the technology and processes you have. That's really been, I think, the biggest challenge. It's just It's constant scale. I would say we're not in startup mode anymore, right? So while it's nice to want to applaud hero work and kind of coming in at the 11th hour to save things, I always tell my team that a, a well-operating factory is really boring because it's really predictable. And so for me, you know, priority has been on trying to get our systems and processes in a place where they're very predictable and the fire drills are few and far between. One, because it's just a better environment to work in. I mean, people lose an appetite for that and it drives attrition, but also it's better for the business to have less hiccups, especially as we get larger. Yeah, and I love what you say is as soon as you get into a rhythm, the scale breaks it. I think that's really poignant. And I think a lot of people listening in can identify with that as well, even if they're not at a rapid growth company. When we spoke about this session, you mentioned that adding good people to your team was your favorite part of your job. So why is that? One, I think I've, I've found that it's my talent. Some people find what they're good at really early in life. I'm the type of person that bounces through a million different things. Um, you know, my garage is full of hobbies of the past, you know, things I purchased and, and not really gone forward with. And I found in becoming a leader and building a team that my talent is finding really great people and cultivating a great culture, and then letting those people do their thing. So it's funny, I'm getting the feeling right now just talking about it. What's really exciting is like, I love finding people that have a lot of untapped value, where maybe they haven't been pushed enough, or they haven't been encouraged enough. You know, I really believe in, um, I'm a dad, uh, and I think there's a lot of analogies between leading a team and leading a, a family. And I, I think that in many cases, a dad's role is to encourage the family, children. And as a leader, you want to encourage your team to take risks and kind of say like, I won't let you completely fail. I will let you fail a little bit because you got to feel that and you have to grow from it. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of here to, to, to set some guidelines for you, but I'm here to push you. And so when we're able to add people, and we've done this both adding people from the outside or pulling people from, in, from other departments and teams across Splunk, where they say, you know, I, think I have a talent, you know, I think I'm good at this, but I don't feel like I'm really reaching that in this role. 
I love bringing those folks in and giving them new roles and just watching them flourish. And so far, we've been really, really fortunate to be able to do that a lot. But it's definitely my favorite part of the job. I think I realized like, I'm not going to be the most technical person all the time, even though that's where I started my career. I'm not going to have all the answers. I was kind of blessed to figure that out early and just say, okay, like, let's hire the best people we can. Let's keep a great culture. No prima donnas. I say that a lot. Like, I don't think anyone is talented enough to threaten the culture of the whole team. Um, and I really, I really do believe in that. So yeah, that's, it's the most fun. This, this year we're doing a lot of, we're introducing four new Adobe tools to our stack. And it's the biggest innovation we've ever done to our tech stack. And so we're going to have to hire a couple of dozen people over the next year and a half to basically get this done. And it's a lot of fun for me. I love going through resumes. I love interviewing. I do all the phone screens myself because I really feel like I get a feel for people and, and whether they'll fit with the culture. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you said about no one is talented enough to kind of derail the culture of the team. I think everyone has seen that, right? And I think in operations, especially people like to jump around. So, you know, you know, they might get into marketing ops, but they might want to move into a more traditional rev ops role or customer success yeah. ops. So how do you as a manager view somebody wanting to move over and kind of how do you approach that with them? I'm really open to that. So to give you an example, we're introducing Adobe Workfront right now as a project management and work management platform. The two folks leading that project, one came from our global demand center and one came from our MarTech team, right? And so we pulled them out of those teams to work on this project. I'm really open to that. I feel like people do their best work when they're interested in what they're doing. There's enough of a challenge to grow them without crushing them. And when you have a small team, it's hard, right? When the team is two or three people, it's really hard to move people around like that because at the end of the day, the work has to get done. But when you kind of reach a, a critical mass, it gets a little bit bigger and you get closer to eight, 10 people, like you can start to do that because what you'll find is someone wants to take on this new challenge and the role that they're leaving, very often there's someone else that sees that as their challenge at that point in their career. That's why you want to have people from different backgrounds with different interests at different points in their careers um, so that you can give everyone the ability to do that. We've been really fortunate. You know, funny enough, later this afternoon, I'm, I'm doing a, a guest lecture at Villanova University where I went to undergrad and I do it every semester. And one of the things I, I do at the end of the presentation for juniors and seniors is I give them unsolicited advice, right? I have a captive audience. So I kind of tell them what I think. And one of the things is I really promote tech. You know, growing up on the East Coast, tech was not a primary industry for me, right? I thought I would go into financial, for example, right? I grew up in New York, but tech, because of the high growth, there's so many new opportunities that come across every day, right? Like literally four months ago, I didn't have any room for workfront experts. I've since hired a workfront admin. We've got two workfront project leads. I've got a project manager there, right? And so when you have massive growth, it opens up all these new opportunities. So we've been really fortunate. We haven't had a lot of attrition, because when folks start to get antsy, one, I can I can sense it. I feel like I, I can kind of sniff that out. But usually I have another opportunity to throw them on, right? Something aspirational that they can go after. I realize it's not like that everywhere, but I think the closer you can get to growth, the closer you're going to get to those kinds of opportunities to do that. So I'm a big supporter of that. I just hired a, a head of project management because that's not something I'm good at. 
And she came from our IT business applications team. We'd worked together before, had no idea she was interested in marketing. One conversation and next thing I knew she was she was in our team bringing her skill set in. So it's it's exciting to be able to do that. I think that's so important. And especially in tech, which is known for being people are known for being very fickle. Right. And there's a lack of what some would call loyalty to an individual company. People jump around a lot. So I think in order to retain talent, being willing to move them around within your org is so key. One more on that. I've been reading a a book. um, It's been out for a long time. Good to great. I'm sure a lot of listeners have, have read it or at least heard of it. And they talk about getting the right people on the bus and then getting the right people in the right seats. And I'm definitely very focused on getting the right people on the bus. The person who runs our marketing technology team, we have Eloqua right now. We're moving to Marketo after 12 years of Eloqua. But the person who runs that team, when I hired her, she had never used Eloqua, never even logged in. But I knew she was the right person to get on the bus, right, to use the analogy. And within three months, she was certified and she was off and running, right? It was never a question. No one would ever actually know that based on her performance. And so for me, it's like when someone is, when someone would consider leaving because they feel they don't have the opportunity they need, I want to work really hard to find that opportunity because I want to keep them on the bus, right? We can give them another seat. I want to keep them on the bus. I don't want to lose talent to other companies. Uh, it's, it's really important. This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkin is the operating system for business operations, providing businesses with the building blocks to orchestrate any process with no code or change management required. Contact us at Tonkin.com to learn how you can build complex processes fast. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Adaptive Ops community at operations.community. When we spoke, you also talked about it's difficult to go from being technical to running a technical team. And I just want to kind of dig into that and talk more about that. Yeah. The hardest transition in our world is going from I'm an IC or an individual contributor that's really good at this thing to leading a team of people that are really good at that thing. There's so much literature on this. I mean, so many leadership books talk about this, management books. It's Companies assume you can take a person who's really good at a thing and have them manage people who are good at that thing. They're two completely different skill sets. And so when I became a manager, uh, you know, the first mistake I made was thinking that I needed to see everything that was going on, right? I was so afraid of the team making a mistake and me being at the helm, right? And that being a reflection of me that instead of having the team work across, everything was coming through me, right? And I was kind of the hub. What did it do? It burnt me out, right? I'm only one person. I didn't have the time to do that. And so inevitably, it's like you try to make everyone happy. You make no one happy. Six months in, I remember to becoming a manager. It was like, well, I'm a terrible manager because I've only been doing this for six months and I, I don't know what to do. And my technical skills are, are dull because I, I'm not actually in the tools every day anymore, right? So you're kind of out in the middle of the ocean alone, it feels like. And so that's a really difficult change. And I think a lot of people get stuck there in their career, right? They might think they're not a good leader or a good manager because they're not able to make that transition. The hardest thing is, and, and I think we don't talk about this enough in companies, is it's a different skill set. A leader leads. A leader is living in the future. They're pulling their team forward. They're setting a vision. They're, they're, they're trusting their team to make decisions. They are not checking everyone's work necessarily, right? They're not involved in every discussion. And in the beginning, that's hard because your team's going to make mistakes, right? You want to make sure that 
the mistakes they're making are not anything that would really upend the business. And in our case, it, it's usually not the case, right? We've had a few that have been, been loud mistakes, but it's usually not going to upend Splunk, right? And you want to let them make small mistakes. You want to let them make decisions because one, it builds their confidence and it builds their independence. Last year, I went on pat leave. We had a son last May. Uh, I took four months off. And so one, it was, it was amazing. We're fortunate to have that here. I didn't assign a delegated leader for my group. I just told my three leaders who have their teams, basically like, you're going to do this on your own. If you need help, you can go to my boss. But this is a good experience for you guys to make decisions, to believe in those decisions, to see them through. And it was a risk, but all in all, it was a great experiment. Because when I came back in September, they were basically running their own teams of like businesses, right? And they kind of didn't, didn't need me, so to say. And that's what allowed us to take on this massive Adobe transformation that we're doing this year. Whereas if I was involved day to day, second to second with every little decision that goes on, I just wouldn't be able to take on anything new. And it comes down to philosophy, but I, I feel like generally speaking, leaders need to be living in the future and they need to be setting the vision and they need to be pulling their team forward. So that transition is really difficult. So for anyone who's in that position, who feels like I became a manager, but I'm not sure how to do my old job and I'm not sure how to do my new job. I think it it's a mental shift is needed for you to say, and I said this to my team. I said, hey, guys, like, I don't think I'm a really good leader. I feel like I'm doing a bad job. And they were like, well, yeah, you kind of are doing a bad job because you're trying to do everything and just accept your new role. And then, I mean, literally for me, it was like a big mindset person. I was like, when I woke up in the morning, I just tell myself, like, you're the leader of the organization, right? Like, it's not an ego thing, because I, I think actually you have to realize that you're nothing without the team. You have to depend on them to to kind of lift everything for you. But they also depend on you to, to give guidance, to knock down barriers, to get the resources you need, et cetera. So I think sometimes it's looked at as taboo maybe to just be the leader, right? And just lead. But I look at like CEOs, right? And I'm thinking, okay, CEO, say CEO of Splunk, right? We have a new CEO starting next week. It's got 8,000 people in the organization, right? But in reality, maybe six to eight report to him. And that's who he deals with on a day-to-day basis. And he needs those people to have the trust in their team and trust in their team and trust in their team and so on. But the CEO can't do every job, even though he's at the top of the pyramid, so to say. And so when I looked at that, it kind of clicked for me. and said, like, if I'm going to fight this continually and think that I need to know everything that's going on all the time, it's, it's going to be an endless fight, right? Because that doesn't seem to be the path to success. And so I just accepted the role of the leader did a lot of reading on this also, right? I'm, I tend to read and talk to other leaders and understand what they're going through, but it's definitely the hardest change that we go through in business is becoming a manager. Yeah. And I love that you said, you know, it took you stepping away for your team to kind of rise to the occasion. And then you were then able to come back and implement something new and actually do the job that you're supposed to do, which is again, living in the future, implementing new technology. So yeah, that's that's a really good, really good point. More people should go on paternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your leadership philosophy? I know you kind of touched on it, but yeah. So I if I could sum it up, I mean, I, I really believe in like it's like an old military adage, like take care of the troops and they'll take care of the mission. So take care of your team and they'll take care of the work. Um, I really believe in that. You know, my leadership styles, I really trust my team. I, I make sure that 
folks understand I am, I am there for them. I really believe in, if you look at like, we're coaches, right. And I, I think that if you look at, again, like sports always bring so many good analogies. Like when you lose, the coach gets all the blame. And when you win, the coach gets none of the credit. And I feel like that's the way it should be, right? Like the satisfaction of winning is in, is internal for me with the team, right? I don't need the credit. I want the team to get the credit because ultimately, like they're the ones to keep in the sports analogy, right? Between the lines and they're, they're, they're doing all of the work. And But I do feel like when there is a failure in the organization of any level, it is it is on me, right? Because um, I, I should be running an organization that, that 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 doesn't happen. So, but I do feel like taking care of the people is super important and understanding another piece of advice that I give to the students I, I lecture is like, we work with people um, and people are, people have stuff, people are weird, right? Like things happen to people and life is really, it's a lot of variables. So it's really important to understand when your people just need you to be their sounding board to support them, to push them, to tell them that you believe in them, that they will succeed, even though they might be having some trouble. That's really how I lead. I really believe in my people, believe in building a great team and then letting them do their thing, right? Get good people on the bus, try to get them in the right seat and then let let them do their thing, kind of get out of the way. That's the way I look at it. And again, I think sometimes that's taboo because it's it might be easy to misinterpret that as like, well, I'm just not going to do any of the work. The team does the work, right? But I think creating the right environment and culture is an, is important. I really believe that is why culture is so important in companies, right? It's what we all talk about, especially in tech, right? There's a lot of attrition, a lot of growth, things are constantly breaking, culture can suffer. It's like, I can set priorities, initiatives, projects, whatever. I can give guidelines for how to make a decision, but your culture and value is what fills in the gaps. Like when I can't be there to make a decision, my team should understand what we believe in as a team and how we would make that decision. And they should be able to bring those values forward. So I really believe in, in culture. I think it carries everything. Agreed. Agreed. And this has sparked a lot of conversation in the live chat. So we have a few questions coming in. One from Prasanna. Hey, Rob, can you please provide more insights on how you had how you had present yourself to the management in the process of becoming the people manager role from an IC. So if, if this is present yourself to my upper management and becoming a manager, in a way, it's like I it was I didn't know. I mean, I knew I eventually wanted to be a manager, but I didn't know at that time that I was going to become a manager. The way it happened for me was you do this thing. We have another person that does this thing and we feel like that person should report to you. And I was like, cool. Sounds great. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was I was up for the challenge. I was always very, I think building a really candid and trustful relationship with your direct manager is really important so that I could go to my leader and say, I'm suffering through this, or like, I don't know how to do this, or I'm feeling imposter syndrome or whatever it might be. Um, it was really important for me. I think a good leader will be honest and recognize that they've gone through the same struggle you're going through. And they won't pretend like, oh, you should just know this, right? Like I called you a manager, so suddenly you should be a manager. I think a good leader will recognize that. Well said. We have a question here from Jeff. When you have a new project coming, what data do you use to justify having to hire X number of people? Good question. And I was really bad at this for a long time. I I would always underestimate. I would be afraid to say, 
we need six people for this thing, right? Because inevitably when you do that, the other person comes back and says like, well, could you do it in four? And I was always so enamored with the opportunity that I would just say, like, yeah, sure. Right. And then I would always end up in a place where we couldn't deliver or people were under too much stress. And so I've learned how to get better at this. In our most recent initiative with these Adobe projects, I thought about each project. I mean, I did my research to understand like, what are we doing? You know, what do often like the vendor can say, these are the types of roles you need or et cetera. And so what I did was I asked for a, a, a number of headcount. I broke it down by project to show each role. So each one's going to have a project manager. Each one will have a technical analyst, a project lead, right? And kind of broke it down like that with the caveat of as we get into discovery, the role definitions are probably going to change. But what I won't come back and do is say we need more people, right? I'm going to ask you for what we need. When we were one of the challenges that comes up, when we were doing this, I got asked, okay, well, what is like a minimum viable product look like for the team? And my feedback was like, there isn't one, right? If you want to achieve the vision that you're talking about as an executive, this is what it takes to do that. So either you you trust us to do that or we don't do this. That was kind of the bottom line. That's how we got what we asked for. The practical side of it is you have to really kind of picture a day in the life of running that product, of what it looks like from, you know, uh, sustainable across time. We have more resources in the build phase, you know, the first 18 months than we will in the sustained phase. So there's some academic stuff you can do to kind of really get to an accurate estimate. You want to be clear when you're making an ask that you have defined generally what the roles are going to do and that you have conviction in what you're asking for. So if you're asking for 20 heads, don't say 15 to 20. You're going to get 15. You say 20. Right. It, it's super important to be clear, because if people think you have wiggle room, they'll they'll take that wiggle room. Right. So you have to have conviction, I would say. Really good points. And we have a question here from Gaurav. How do you deal with a situation when someone asks you a technical data related question from your stakeholders, but you don't have an answer? I think you just always have to be candid. I mean, I would just say that's a that's a principle in general. I'm not embarrassed to say I, I don't know something. You know, I will say that, you know, I don't have the answer to that, but I'm sure someone in the team does. If it's something I know we can get to quickly, I'll commit to it. If it's something convoluted or higher level of effort, I'll, I'll ask more questions around why do you need that? What are you going to do with it? I think what's important is to realize, I tell my team this all the time, like, it's free to ask. So people are going to ask you things all the time. It's free for them. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. They just don't know what effort goes into getting to some of those answers sometimes. So it's important to understand what are you going to use this for? Because it's going to take me this massive level of effort to get to it. And if I'm going to do that for you to just read the number and it, it sits on a shelf, I don't want to do that. That's not a good use of our resources. So I think if it's something we can get, you know, some up, something we can get to easily, I don't know, uh, but I'll get you that answer from the team. I think that's always an acceptable answer. If it's something that you question the validity of, I would, ask a couple of poking questions around what are you going to do with this? What's it used for? Who are you going to communicate it to, especially with certain metrics around funnel and things like that. Um, you want to make sure before something gets out in the wild that it's, it's kind of vetted because you don't know who's, you know, what executive desk that's going to end up on. Um, so you got to be clear on that. Thank you. And we have one more question from Prasanna. Do you ever encounter a situation where your team reached out to you about issues related to process and your teams, but you weren't aware of it? How do you help resolve it? 
I mean, this, this happens, right? So, Hey, someone reach out to me and say, Hey, I, uh, this process that your team owns, uh, isn't ideal or it broke. And we review this stuff weekly. So this morning we, we had a meeting where we run the business and we look at all of our key metrics that we're measuring to see if something's broken down, if there's something that's trending in the wrong direction. So I try to know about these things as often as possible, but sometimes a stakeholder hears about it before I do. It's always being candid and saying, Hey, I didn't know about that. I'll jump on that right away and kind of understand, you know, just understand what's going on. I don't think anyone would expect you to know everything all the time because I don't think they would want you to have that expectation of them. Right. I I think, I think that's a false expectation. I think that people who claim to have all the data all the time are pretending we're all human beings. Right. So like we're, we all have like everything from the amount of time we have to the level of intelligence we have, like mostly everything's a bell curve. Right. So like if you're asking me of something, uh, something, I would have to assume that if I asked you, you would want the same feeling back. Right. So if you're expecting that I know everything all the time, every uh, up to the latest second, like I think you're just pretending, you know, and, and I just I just try not to play that game. You know, it's just totally understand. Don't know about that. Jump on it right away. The thing that I found that I tell my team is like mistakes are going to happen. You want to limit them, but to think you're going to get them to zero is silly because it just won't ever happen. The most important thing is how you react to them. So when there's an issue, there's an incident report, there's an investigation, this is what happened, this is how we fixed it, this is why it won't happen again, this is the impact and what we want to do going forward. I learned that early because when my team would make mistakes, I would just go in like, sorry, sorry, this broke, sorry. And the reality is no one cares if you're sorry, they care what the impact was and if it's going to happen again. And people respect that. Again, I, I think good leaders who aren't lying to themselves realize that they've done that too. They've had mistakes uh, up and down any department. There are mistakes. I mean, companies think about this public companies misguide on earnings, possibly the most important thing you're going to put out in the market. So if they can do that, a form can break down right on, on our side of the house and it happens. Right. So just all you, how you respond to things. Very good analogy. Thank you so much, Rob. We're running out of time here. I'll leave you with the information that someone just said you're one of their favorite guests on the show. So congratulations for that. And I couldn't agree more. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Before I let you go, how can people get in touch with you? Um, You can reach me on LinkedIn. Just please don't send me any product pitches or I'll just ignore you. Um, (laughs) We have to to get to know each other before you can try to sell me something. So just connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love that. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks to everyone who listened in for another episode of Modern Business Operations and have a great rest of your day. Great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com slash mbopod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. 